namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutassa uddham dhammam sankhamasam So, welcome to the tent. We hope to get this. Uh, we hope to get the ceiling insulated, and so it uh, deflects the sun and keeps some of the warmth in, mitigate heating. So we reckon this will be our meditation hall for the next four or five years. So Venerable came across that brilliant idea. So getting it usable. So, and I've been, as I said last week, I think I've been a part of tents for most of my monastic life because I've been involved in the beginnings of monasteries and there was always tents. So this is quite familiar territory for me. I've been a monk for this is my 42nd Vasa as a monk, so it's my whole adult life. Before that I was, uh, I had no, I had no, uh, I had a yearning, but I didn't know what the yearning really meant in terms of the path, the social path, not sociopath, <laughs> it's a social So, you know, at this stage in the game, I, I tend to reflect back on what has worked, uh, why has this life been effective, what uh, teachers helped me. So I reflect a lot on, on gratitude, that I've had this good fortune to live this way. But also in, in teaching the Dhamma, I'm always pondering, so what is it about the way I've trained, um, the influences that have been uh, significant in my life. What is, what in all of that produced good results? And then obviously I try to um, relay those considerations back to you. See, does it make sense to you? Is it effective in your life? Because for me, Buddhism isn't an uh, academic exercise or an exercise in pure faith but rather uh, an exercise in, in uh, understanding myself in a way that makes me a better person, makes me a more peaceful person, more uh, decent person, makes me happy, basically. Um, and I think we're kind of all there on the same page, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, you know, that yearning for deeper fulfillment or the yearning for understanding, yearning for clarity, these are, these are profound human strivings, and as human beings, we have, we have all, all manner of um, formats we're kind of working in. We're, we're, we're biological beings, so we, we function from a, a body, a nature body that has biological functions, uh, that is an animal body that has to humans and needs of, a, of an animal. We are uh, social beings. Uh, I was just reading a, a, bo a book on moral psychology that I've been 
ranting on about a bit, but in it, uh, the author was saying that you'll never see a chimp bending an apple branch down so another chimp can get an apple off it. It won't have that sense of cooperation. The chimp might, I don't know if it's true, if it's wrong, but bear with me. <laughs> but a chimp might see another chimp doing that and copy and get their own apple with a sense of having a shared intention in a cooperative effort for the good of both is something that it seems to be um, not uniquely human, but is a very powerful part of our, our, human, uh, our human nature now. So we're not just animals evolved to these forms, we're also social beings. And that's, you know, reflecting on my own life, the, uh, the beauty of living in social conventions, which are always aspiring to something profoundly good, and yet not lost in the idealism of goodness, not just being wishy-washy concepts that you can't really live up to, or abstract notions which you always fail in achieving. And the social structures that I've you know, had the good fortune to live in as a, as a monk um, have this interesting, um, very pragmatic side, so we call that the Vinaya, and then they have this, this dimension which is not uh, altruistic, it's, it's realistic, it's a dimension that helps us to look at our inner lives in a way which liberates us from suffering and all the, the confusion that we can get caught into human beings. But the social side is actually very pragmatic. So when I'm up, like right now, we're, uh, every morning we're listening to um, Dharma talks by Ajahn Sachita, where he's training the community in Vinaya, uh, in Chitras. And uh, this is something we do every Vasa, every range retreat, which began uh, yesterday. And we're always reflecting and remembering these training rules and these uh, structures that we all live by. And you think after 42 years, you know, why do you need to do that again? And I, I say that too, why do I need to go hear this again, 42 years again? No. But actually, just listening to Ajahn Sachito's reflections this morning, it always it brought back to me the, the nobility of the life and the uh, noble aspiration that the Buddha recommended we, we uh, follow in our lives. So just being reminded of those social structures which are noble and ennobling. And the way it's done in the, in the monastic order, uh, the, the monastic order, it's, it's, it's rule-keeping is not the Dharma. And it's not like, it's not, it's, 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 a, it's a real structure and an etiquette which we all just have to learn how to train with. And it's a training, you know, it's a training. Um, and so it's very, it seems very boring that, that um, like we can't eat. I cannot have milk in my coffee after midday by the sun. So midday by the sun, we say it's roughly one o'clock. So if you were to offer me coffee with milk in it at 105, uh, and I knew it was coffee, and I knew it was milk, I couldn't have it. 
And then it was a silliness. You know, the Dharma is about liberation, Dharma is about nibbana, about the deathless, about the unconditioned, about and all that. And then you get this silly rule. I mean, what does it matter? Coffee with milk at 105 or 106. I mean, it doesn't really, really matter. But it does. Because I like milk in my coffee. <laughs> I'd like it at 110. I'd like it at 120. I'd like it in the evening. I get it in the morning. <laughs> and and so what I can watch is my preferences. You know how I it's in a little rule how uh, sometimes I can get what I want, but oftentimes I can't get what I want. And if you if you get a whole training like that, not just about large moral principles about not, not killing each other, those are easy to keep, uh, but a whole set of little principles which are constantly reflecting back to you what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's wholesome, what's not wholesome. One begins to have quite a lot of awareness around all the resistances and, and likings and dislikings in the human mind. And the importance, the important thing is not not the coffee and the milk. It's the patterns of mind that create suffering. That's what's important. You know, I was about the milk, and I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be a monk. <laughs> so it's about the patterns of suffering that we have. And the patterns of suffering that we have are based upon uh, modes of wanting and not wanting. Modes of, of being frustrated or being uh, fulfilled and satisfied. And if we were to just pursue those, and we have, all of us have tried to pursue those without any boundaries, that doesn't really work. And why doesn't it work? Because there is no end to that need for gratification. There's no end to that. It's just one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing. So when we're frustrated, um, for like in our monastic training, one of the things we consider, say, if, if, a, if, if, a, if a man comes and he wants to be uh, trained with us as an anagarika, or as a, as a junior monk, say, uh, and he feels very, very inspired, you know, he kind of likes me, he likes the Buddha, he likes Pali Theravada Buddhism. We say he's not ready yet. He's still inspired. Probably like marriage. <laughs> but when he starts to have doubt, and, and the inspiration bears off, and uh, the whole Pali structure gets boring, or, you know, he says, oh, there goes Viradhamma again, or why doesn't he be quiet? Then we say, oh, now let's see what he's really worth. Which is true of any vocation, any commitment, isn't it? What's, what's this commitment I've made really worth? And so then if a, if a novice then starts to feel uh, disgruntled or starts to blame or uh, thinks the problem is external, then they leave. And they go, this isn't for me. So the ones that stay tend to go through a cycle of inspiration, uh, demonization, <laughs> and then normalization. I get demonized sometimes. Or some of the other monks we get demonized. So first, oh, Bhante, you're just this, you're just great. And then after a while, the, the smiles leave. There are more frowns. The person looks at the floor rather than looking at me. You know, say, whoa, whoa, something's going on. But it's good. It's good because the idea in 
liberation of the heart is not that you can be inspired all the time, but you find a place in your heart which is beyond inspiration and disappointment. Right? And so we watch, and, and when a, a novice goes through that cycle, you know, we try to encourage them, but basically, you're going to have to sort this out, mate. You know, we're not going to hold your hand. Uh, you want to be here or not? It's a, you know, it's a place for grown-ups. And so our, our, our strategy is not to, oh, oh, you poor novice, you feel a bit down. Please have milk with coffee at 102, at 105. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> and I didn't try to do that. Right? He didn't make anything special for us. He said, you know what? Take it or leave it, right? Work with it. And that's very, actually very, uh, a very generous and kind thing to do, isn't it? Rather than shift goalposts all the time to keep someone satisfied who needs to look at dissatisfaction. And we all do. I mean, we all just very, very human. And so that requires the, the basic the basic component of what we think was the structure of the Buddha's um, striving for many, many lifetimes. It was the barami, or the virtue of, of truthfulness. And the virtue of truthfulness is not simply some kind of a, a, a moral honesty where we don't lie on our income tax forms and things like that, but rather a real honest um, reflection on if, if, if I'm suffering in this situation, and if it's not immoral, then it's a chance for me to learn, rather than blaming myself or someone else. So the, we have this word seika, the learner. And the learner, if you, if you think about anything you're learning how to do, the learner fumbles. The learner makes mistakes, uh, spoils materials, uh, cuts their fingers off, <laughs> in the worst case. Uh, but the learner is always watching cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And in the same way, when we feel the, the modes of discontent or dissatisfaction, whatever way that comes up, um, the truthfulness is that, that virtue which now says, this is where I need to work. This is where I can develop virtuous qualities. This is very important. This is where I can understand myself more deeply. And that is paramount for monastic life and paramount for any, um, I think, truly spiritual life. Because if, if my spiritual life is always dependent on others for its fulfillment, then there's no way. It's not spiritual, it's worldly. So the social life of the Sangha is pragmatic in the sense that we have boundaries and, and, and limitations within which we have to surrender. And then within that, we practice the Dharma. And the Dharma is the truth of the way things are. And then the Four Noble Truths is why we make it a problem. So what's, what's essentially crucial to this way of life, because Buddhism is a way of life, it's not just a... Uh, a set of belief principles, it's not just a culture, it's a way of life if you're going to take it authentically. What's crucial is this, this simple capacity to listen to the sound of the fan, which I keep emphasizing that kind of idea, and just really focusing on the present moment. And you can't do that enough. And you just have to, we have to do it a lot, lot, a lot, and then some more. Just this awakening to the common experience of this present moment, the ordinary experience of this present moment. And that, that is very difficult, surprisingly difficult, because you can understand, I think most of us can understand that principle, but we can get absorbed into 
uh, interesting things on the internet or, or, or we can get absorbed into our own thoughts of liking or disliking for, for hours, for hours and not really know it's all. But life is this way now. So a whole realm and a whole world is being created around, uh, within our minds and yet we don't know it's so It's this way now. And you'll hear that again and again and again, this way now, this way now. And so the, my, my monastic life has been a, um, not a constant inspiration, uh, not a constant liking of monastic life, not a constant enjoying of not having coffee at 102, uh, not a constant sense that I want to be a monk the rest of my life. It's been oftentimes anything but this. <laughs> Or, there must be a better way to do this. Or, I'm, 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 I'm going to jump the wall. I can't do this anymore. Or, you know, you, we've all had that. But, such a barmy, fortunately, for me, has been strong enough that I say, yeah, yeah. But this situation now, it's not harming you. It's a perfect situation. If you can't be free now, when are you going to be free? If you can't understand yourself now, when are you going to understand yourself now? And I just couldn't debate that. I said, all right, you win, I'll stay. <laughs> and, and that's a very beautiful quality. It's not like not diminishing the frustration or, or, or saying that I shouldn't feel frustrated. It's saying, no, that, that this problem, you're still a learner. You need to learn about this now. And it's not anyone's fault. Because you don't understand it. You don't understand how to stay above this one. And so a life of, of both inspiration and frustration is normal. And a life of inspiration, constant uh, inspiration, is not possible. And a life where frustration and disappointment are used as the means to an end. And that end is a mind which is at peace with all formations, all changes, all situations, all forms of life. Now that's a truly profound kind of peace. And a social life which is lived in a sense uh, that the Buddha asked us and encouraged us to live in a noble way, to live according to the principles of generosity, according to the principles of, of, of sharing our resources, of, of, um, of forgiveness, of seeing, like, if you think about anatta, the teachings of not-self, it's, it's saying that if a person makes a mistake, they're not a bad person. It's just a mistake, right? And yet we can, in ourselves, we can make a mistake and we can hold to that self-perception. I made a mistake, I made a mistake. Or someone else makes a mistake and then we perceive them that way for 10 years, although they may have moved on. So the, the, the factors of like forgiveness and compassion are a means to an end. And that end is that the mind is, no, is not always preoccupied with thought, with history, with storylines, with narratives. That the mind has uh, a spaciousness which can receive the way things are. If you think about if I'm really um, resentful of someone that did something to me last week, and I just think that resentment, two, two problems arise. One, I'm suffering in the moment, but also I'm creating suffering for the future. Because the more I, the more I attach to resentment, the more I'll resent in the future. And it won't be just about the person I'm resenting now. 
It'll be about another person, another person, another person. Obviously, isn't it? So the abandonment of resentment yeah, the, and, and the awakening to resentment as an object takes you to that that mode of being, which is most important. We can be social beings. We can we are we are you know, we have an animal body. We are moral beings, but also we are reflective, and this is like so crucial to being a true human being. Not all bipeds are reflective, and that's not just birds. <laughs> not all. Not all bipeds actually take responsibility for their minds. Not all bipeds have the have the resources actually to reflect. I'm presently reading a horrible book about the war in Syria because I I wanted to read about hell. <laughs> Don't mind me. And I wanted to see what are these people going through? How how low can humanity get? And it is awful what they're doing to each other. Just just awful. Just that. To reflect in that situation, you have to be a saint. You, know, you have to be a saint to, 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 to do that. So we, we, we are social beings, but we are particularly gifted in our social situations that we can reflect. And that's because of, of the, our good karma, or whatever you want to call it, that we have chosen to live decently. And those around us have chosen to live relatively decently. We're very lucky that way. And, and, and this idea of our of our social karma giving us the, the space for reflections is very important in Buddhism. That we aren't just uh, individual meditators on cushions doing uh, mindfulness and stress reduction. You know, that, that that's an important part, but we, we're also social beings. The way we, we look and we relate with each other. And cultivating that is a form of craft. Cultivating listening skills and cultivating communication skills is a form of craft. And that's what I found in the training of monastic life is that um, like just speaking in, in large groups would make me very nervous so we'd have maybe a, 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 a meeting of 20 ajans and I'd be really really nervous and I said oh look at that you can talk there but you can't talk here well that's interesting and it's an experiment it's, a, it's an observing oh when this happens the personality gets anxious and nervous and that's the reflective capacity, isn't it? It's not just being nervous or running away from my nervousness. It's noticing, oh, wow, look at that. I come in the room and then I watch, okay? So what are you nervous about? And I don't know, nothing really, just nervous. And then, then, you know, I, then I watch, I'd say like someone like Ajahn Sachito would be incredibly gifted in Ajahn Amaro in, in speaking groups. And then I'd watch my own mind, I'd feel really inferior. And I can see, well, that's a sense of self. That sense of self arises in relation to other people, and that's suffering. And then I just go back, yeah, but this is the way it is now. This situation, there's nerves, and there's people talking. Some are skilled, some are not skilled, and that's the way it is now. And then my mind would start to think, well, I should be different, or I should be as gifted as this other monk, or blah, blah, blah. and then, oh yeah, but this is the way it is now. And coming back to that theme begins to liberate you from that seeming reality of self. All the suffering that we that we get caught up into, into this personality thoughts. Because our personality is just a bunch of thinking, isn't it? Think about it. <laughs> isn't it? You know, you know, you watch the, like, okay, so that example, I'm in a group, and there is one, uh, two monks who are gifted speakers. They could they're just so beautiful to hear their language. 
and and so articulate and so on. And I see that, and then I feel that, and my sense of inadequacy is triggered, and then I think, I'm inadequate, inadequate, inadequate. So then I might go to a dictionary and learn more words to become adequate, <laughs> but I don't think I'd ever reach that since you touch on Emerald's status as speakers. Or, and, and, and that thinking is the person, isn't it? That's the... Or I can say, oh, this is what inadequacy feels like. There's no person there. There's still inadequacy, or whatever the emotional content is, but there's no person. Isn't the person just a bunch of thinking? Try it. And just, 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 just uh, feel totally useless, and don't think about it. <laughs> it's hard to do, right? Because it's much more comfortable just to feel useless and think about it. But to actually feel inadequate or useless or, or, or the greatest thing since sliced bread, whatever you want, uh, it's just a feeling. That's all it is. It's just a perception. It's just a way of interpreting. And when you don't think about it, what happens? It ceases. It dies. It stays for a while. But you begin to see that the person is a creation of thought. And it, it's, it's a soap bubble. Now, the fear or the feeling of inadequacy is not a soap bubble. That's an energy, right? Trouble is energy creates thought through attachment. So feeling, any any feeling is okay because it's it's really conditioned by other factors. It's not your fault. It's not my fault I feel inadequate or I feel arrogant or I feel lesser or more than. That's That just comes up because the cards come up that way that morning or whatever. But where the problem is in, is in thinking and personality thinking. And this is what we're trying to point to in the teachings of anatta. Teachings of anatta are not saying that nothing's going on or that you're not experiencing emotions because that is not true. You are. You know, when you stub your toe, it's your toe, not my toe. Right? Your, your parental condition is different than my parental condition and so on and so forth. But the arising of that is a formation in nature. It's natural. And if you do these exercises, like I would recommend, if you listen to sound, and then you feel your hands, you have toggle between those two. Listen to sound, feel your hands. Let's see that awareness is, is conscious space which has no, no limits. It's not big or small. Right? And then when an emotion comes up, so an emotion of inadequacy comes up, see if you can see it's just the same that this emotion of inadequacy is in awareness. It's just an awareness. That's all it is. It's not pleasant, but as there's a mosquito bite, a mosquito bite's not pleasant, but it's an awareness. So you begin to be able to see that that whole creation of a problem through thinking is not necessary. It really isn't. But it's powerful. Like if I feel, if I'm, if I'm in a group of speakers, I mean, this doesn't occur now. <laughs> it used to. But I'm in a group of speakers and I feel inadequate. I can't do anything about that, can I? Um, because I, I go into the meeting and say, I do. I, I, I used to, okay, I will, I will not be inadequate. You know, I will be brave, forthright, and speak clearly. And I mumble. <laughs> so you can't do it that way. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. Okay, I'm going to be A, B, and C. But you're not. Because these things come up according to historical forces, which... Are, are, are conditioned into the flow of consciousness. They're neither right nor wrong. But what I can do 
is to notice that I'm, what am I creating around this present moment through thought? And that's a big part of Buddhist mindfulness, is to notice thought as an object, to notice the mood behind the thought through foundation of mindfulness, Chitana Pasana. What is the mood that's driving these thoughts? And it's, oh, it's a feeling. And what's that feeling like? Yuck. And then to stay with that. And if, if I begin to stay with that, I get a twofold benefit. Like I was saying, you get twofold um, debit from attachment, non-attachment, you get twofold possibility. One is that that very feeling of inadequacy, you begin to see that is not suffering. It's just unpleasant. That's a hard one. The feeling of fear that comes up or the feeling of uh, pride that comes up or the feeling of historical resentment comes up only becomes suffering through thought. When you just know it purely as a mosquito bite, just a mosquito bite, it's not suffering. It's just unpleasant. And we try to differentiate between that. The feeling of unpleasantness is becomes suffering through wrong thinking. It's hard to get there because our desire is always to have pleasant. But when you start to really wake up or open the mind to these different modes of personality that we, can, we, that we are witness to, and you take that witnessing stanchion, you, you see, no, is it really suffering or is it just ugly? Or the ugly is not, you know, it's just un- unpleasant. And you watch it and you see, when does it become suffering? It's because the thinking mind, the self-mind, the I-making, my-making, the personality comes up and makes it a problem. And then that problem, now, with awareness, you no longer create that problem. So that's one benefit. Second benefit is that the tendency towards this move is not fueled, because it's not fueled, it begins to die. And then after 42 years, you feel a bit happier. <laughs> it doesn't work. So you, you have this, you need faith to do this, because the more immediate way we deal with these things are, are through compensa- compensations, through distractions or through blame. Uh, do something else. Don't look at this. Don't look at the grief. Uh, don't look at the pain. Uh, just you know, watch a movie or exercise or whatever you want to do, which is okay. It's okay. But at some point, we still they still have energy. We still have energy. And, and so one of the, the powerful things that I think one experiences as a monk over the years, and any, any practitioner, you begin to experience the purity of non-grasping, the purity of not having believed in greed, hatred, and delusion, and that energy of greed, hatred, and delusion now beginning to dissipate, die away, fall away, cease, not be there anymore. And that's the kind of freedom which does not come from willful coercion or from compensation. It comes from having endured the opposite. Uh, and that's good karma. That's the, the good karma of, of being patient with impatience. You don't develop patience when you get everything you want, correct? When you get everything you want, you don't develop patience. When you get something you don't want, that's when you develop patience. And when you can't get what you want, you also develop patience. So you begin to, to look at life as a training, uh, as a system of training, and these kilesas or defilements that tend to preoccupy our, our attention, we begin to 
little by little, most of us, and, and, and in Theravada we say that the, the, the teaching is a gradual teaching. It's like a, a long beach that goes into the ocean. You know? and, and as you have faith and you see little, little ways that this does work, you get more confidence, and the kilesas, the defilements, or the discreet hatred and delusion begin to have less and less power. And whereas in the beginning they were overwhelming, you get lost in them, now they're more like hiccups. You know, it's like a burp rather than a migraine headache or whatever. Different. They don't have the power to delude. Now that sets up another possibility because that's not that's not the end of the game. And because that that is just a method. And what the method of Buddhism is doing is creating the mental space, the conscious space, for you to begin to uh, not be distracted by sights and sounds and tastes and emotions and memories, to not be distracted. To begin to really abide in the present moment in a, in a peaceful economy for long periods of time. And that in itself is a pleasantness. It is a pleasantness. But what it sets up is, is, is an opening to the unconditioned, this realization that the Buddha had, the, the, the transcendent or Nibbana or uh, peace or whatever. And for any of you who are meditators, where you manage not just to suppress your emotions for, with strong uh, practices, but actually notice things and, and not, not attach to them, not attach to them, not attach to them. They fall away and you, you sense that awareness peace, all of that is always there. And that is no longer, your attention is no longer taken up with emotions, with bodily feelings, with memories, with plans and projects. Your attention is now free, it is liberated from those addictions or compulsions or whatever whatever you have. Attention is free now. And what attention gets interested is in awareness itself. You can oh, what's that? And you, you find that you can't you can't find awareness. Because awareness is not an object. You begin to just abide as awareness, as witness. And that in itself becomes an interesting exercise. So things come and go, things come and go, and now the comings and goings no longer delude you or even interest you. And your mind begins to relax. It really relaxes and begins to drop into a sense of, of, of unconditioned peace. Why? Because it's available to do that. And why is it available to do that? Because it's seen that the movement out into objects is unsatisfactory, not interesting. And those objects, the, the negative tendencies of them have worn down. You've worn that down. And in that, in that availability, you begin to see you, your effort must become more and more refined until until you realize somehow I've got to be here, stay present, and make no effort. And just the very saying of that, to make no effort, sounds like effort. But what you'll find in your meditations is there's a kind of refinement process. In the beginning, when you start a meditation, you have to set the clock so you don't get up in five minutes. You have to kind of nail yourself to the cushion so you don't leave because you're so restless. I think we all did that maybe 20 years ago, whatever. But for some reason, just being still is all right. Somehow you learn that. You learn that lesson. Being still is all right. 
And then, then your body learns how to be still, but your mind is still rattling away. And then you, you, you learn how to not go to the rattling. You learn how to disengage. It's kind of like a, like putting, and we only have automatic cars now, but putting the, the gears into neutral. You don't have to engage them anymore. You learn how to disengage. You're not dis- dissociate, not something crazy. You just don't engage. You don't go there. And the way you do that is by making the intention towards present moment awareness. That's what's important. Present moment awareness. Because if you can do that, you'll see that the engagement is through time. Past, future, past, future. What am I going to do? I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to do this. Endless, endless planning, thinking, worrying, and all the rest of it. So that simple intention, present moment awareness, present moment awareness, present moment begins to ground you in the way things are. As you're grounded in the way things are, then you see how your attention goes out into objects. You, and, you, and you, no, I'm not, no, so, no, that, no. It's like you're, you're training a stupid dog sometimes. No, no, that. And, and you do it with training, you don't do it with whipping. <laughs> you know, you just train now, now, doggy. And, and, and you get really good at that. And, and that takes a lot of diligence. You know, it's not like it, it comes for free. It's, there's no free lunch here. There's free lunch before, but with meditation, you've just got to do the work you've got to do. Um, so then, then like, you, you learn how to, you learn how to steal your body. And so, like, posture, whether it's sitting or lying or, or, or just doing walking meditation or standing, a posture where you can not fidget. That's a big one. That's a big one. And then a mind, which isn't fidgeting. That's even more difficult. And, and through, through a kind of exploration and an intuition, you begin to, and a lot of it is intuitive, you know. When I've talked to so many people about meditation, I always ask them now, what works for you? They ask me, how do I meditate? I say, well, what, what do you do? Who are you? How do you think? How do you imagine? How's your body? And I, and I get a feeling for what, how this person comes to a sense of calm and ease. So that's one of the things we do intuitively, you know, as meditators, um, we intuitively feel, well, when I do the breath, I just get too tight. But when I do sound of silence, I really relax. Or when I do sound of silence, I get spaced out. But I'm going to do the breath, I stay present. So these are, these are intuitive things that we all, we all learn. But the movement of meditation is a movement to pleasure. It's not the movement to coercion. It's a movement to pleasure. Right? The movement to silence is pleasant. It's beautiful, right? And you can't move to pleasure through aversion. You can't move to pleasure through control. You have to relax. And yet you have to stay present. That's the challenge. To stay with the moment, relaxed but attentive, relaxed but attentive. So there's a sense of ease, but there's a sense of diligence. And intuitively, that's what you have to figure out. How do I do it? How do I come to a state of ease in the mind? How could I do that? What could I do that? And as you discover that in yourself, you, 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 you start to just dismiss other kinds of practices. Not that they're wrong, but your character doesn't work that way. Your character works this way. And that's why it's a very personal kind of um, exploration. 
And oftentimes people find one particular uh, object of meditation or one set of suggestions begin to work. It becomes their, not just a technique, it becomes how they put the burden down. It becomes how they recollect and remember how to put the burden down. And this isn't manufacturing anything. It's not like trying to manufacture something real power. It's like, when I do this, I get a good result. When I do that, I get a bad result. And you start to see, ah, oh, yeah, this way of thinking, this way of body posture, these uh, objects of awareness, these work for me. And then you start to have a kind of niche, I suppose, you know. You, you, you do, you know, you do pots rather than cabinets. You do gardening rather than drawing. You start to have a kind of sense of, of, of what this being finds helpful for calm and relaxation and ease. And that's a, again, that's a personal thing. You've used this kind of experiment. So just willfully trying, picking up a meditation object that someone else says, this is it. This is the one. Everyone should do this one. And you try to fit your consciousness, your being, your personality into their template. Forget it. It's their template. It's not yours, right? So any suggestions that are given are for reflection. And if those suggestions that are given don't work, then it's not yours. It doesn't work for you. That's all. It's, it doesn't mean you can't meditate. It's just not your particular style. So this kind of exploration, for some, for some um, practitioners, it's very quick. For most, it's years. For most, it's just like again and again and again, going back to the drawing board, back to the cushion. And what you don't see in that returning to the ordinary is that intuition is growing. In, 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 in little ways, intuition is growing. Not to the left, more to the right. No, no, more to the center. And that's not necessarily explicit. You don't necessarily state that. You know it. You just know this works, this doesn't work. And over the years, that sense of putting the burden down, disengaging from objects, being with a spacious mind of awareness becomes a more and more accessible home ground. Uh, it's always there. It's always a possibility, but it gets obscured, I think, in, in our, our business of life. So as that, and that's what I think the meditative life is trying to do, is trying to encourage us to sit quietly, learn how to quiet the mind, in a way, in a way that then when you enter into the complexity of life, you've got an intuition where that home ground is. It's not just about the technique or the, or the cushion, it's an intuition. Then the home ground is here. It's here now. And it comes from that statement, this is the way it is now. Life is this way now. Keep coming back to that. And again, that, that whole process of, 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 of uh, meditative, what should we call it, meditative learning, is good karma. And then you start to get the good results of both um, the mind, the chalaces dropping away, and a confidence, that confidence, this does work, and you want to do it more. You know, when you, when you, when you do anything well, you think, hey, I'll, I think I'll do that again, that was, that was really nice. Right? So the confidence comes from that intuitive insight about what works for you. And the more, the more you come to that confidence, the less you have to 
put the clock on for half an hour and discipline yourself to sit for meditate for half an hour. It's no longer the program. The program is, oh, let's just sit for an hour or so. It's, it's really nice to do. And this, this, is a, this is a lifetime training. You know, if, 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 you're, if, if you have a kind of short-term goal and you feel frustrated, that's natural. But if you stick with it and the frustrations fall away, and, and over the years you get, you get the sense of, uh, of, of beauty in the mind, which is now not just circumstantial. It's deeper than that. The circumstances change, but now you know, ah, oh, this is the home ground. This is this is this is the being which is at ease, um, and and then your exploration is more and more around the unconditioned. What does that mean? What did the Buddha realize? What is transcendence? What is the end of suffering? So the, the accumulation of good karma, social karma, moral karma, uh, physical karma that we take the care of our bodies as well as we can, uh, is is karmic, right? So we say, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. That's karma. But there's something which is beyond karma. It's beyond, beyond good and bad. And that's why it's transcendent. And that, the Buddha said, you have to bring your mind to the present moment and stay there for a long time and give up trying to figure it out. Give up trying to get anything. Give up trying to get rid of anything and just abide in faith and awareness deep faith and awareness. And I think for most of us, like most of us are highly conditioned to analyze, we're thinkers. Most of us have tried to go to university, some have failed, some have made it through. But most of us read and we think a lot. Right? And you come to a point in, in, in meditation where thinking becomes just another object which is uninteresting. You don't try to get rid of it, you just realize it's conditioned by what you've been planning or doing, but your interest now is in no thought. You begin to notice the space of no thought. So you do exercise like listen to the fan and listen, but listen for no thought. Now listen by with no thought. And then you notice the personality coming up again. Yeah, but maybe I should be doing this or shouldn't. Huh. And this is no thought. And then that opens the mind. And then you just then you then you, you get to more and more there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. Non-becoming. Non-resistance. Non-delusion. Present moment awareness. And you use all that language in whatever way it works for you. Like Long Pauline would say, you practice for the sake of practice. You do it because you do it. It's just right. And you just do that and the results themselves come on their own. And those results are the deepening of peace. Not because you try to become more peaceful, because peace is the natural state of consciousness when it's not lost in the objects, when it's not engaged all the time in thinking. So the Buddhist teaching is, is uh, I'm told, it's a multi-lifetime teaching. So uh, I don't have any memories of past lives. And I'm uh, not terribly interested in the future life, but whatever you know, what, however the laws of karma works, I reckon it's a good investment. <laughs> this this is an investment that pays, you know, longer dividends than probably Apple or Google. Who knows? Huh? 
But it does, you know, it does. It's a kind of investment in 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 time. You, know, you have to put time in. But then the results are are, are um, things that you can share. You know, they're not like your investment portfolio. You have to keep it for yourself. You know, the the sharing of a mind which is uh, peaceful is is beautiful, isn't it? You know, it has more space. It has more compassion. It has more time for other beings. So the odd thing about Buddhism, you know, we talk in these ways, it's very selfish. You guys are always thinking about yourselves. But I think we've all seen that the very problem is selfishness. You know, and if we take the time to understand it rather than get rid of it, as that selfishness falls away, then what's left? Seems to me compassion, good works, drinking coffee with milk at 1102. It's, it's, so the, the life is one of, that's more and more filled with joy because the heart has nothing else to do. You know, the, the, the joy of not, the joy of not having to go anywhere, become anything. Socially, we have to. But the, just the joy of not having to become a different kind of a personality. It's all right. This personality is good enough. It gets grumpy, right? It, it's, you know, it makes, so stupid things at meetings, and uh, but that's all right. You begin to feel that that deep compassion, that even this personality, which we could be very critical of, that that's just another character, and we get a compassion for that too. So yeah, I would encourage you to to um, stay with it. And, and uh, try to try to use your own the inner language you use. Try to use it to encourage yourself, rather than to disparage yourself. Try to try to bring forth ideas like, yeah, this is this karma's difficult. This conditioning I have isn't easy, but I'll work with it. I'll work with it. So it's like a humble path, and, and then that encouragement keeps you learning about what you need to learn about. All right, I'll, I'll leave that for your reflection.